Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, get started with our lesson. Let's uh, seek the Lord's help in prayer. Almighty Heavenly Father, I thank you for gathering us together, bringing us here to worship you. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for your Holy Spirit that illumines your word for us. We need your help. I pray that you would um, open our hearts and minds to receive your word, uh, which you would have us learn, and help us to uh, live that out in our lives in the coming days. Thank you. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago, we started a new series on the Lord's Prayer, and uh, the last lesson was on how we ought not to pray. Um, so just to give you a quick recap on what we covered last week and um, set us up for what we're going to cover in our lesson this morning, uh, our Lord Jesus has been teaching on um, what characterizes the citizen of his kingdom, the kingdom life. And uh, he is in the middle of his teaching series, if you will, what is known, to, what has come to be known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. So it continues that in Matthew chapter 6, and he specifically addresses uh, areas of personal piety, uh, namely charitable giving, prayer, and fasting. So our Lord uh, teaches his immediate audience, and by extension you and I today, that Prayer is something that should characterize us as citizens of his heavenly kingdom. So last week we learned how we ought not to pray, that is hypocritically, uh, and in vanity as unbelievers. And in doing so, we pray in such a manner we're engaging in self-worship and having a spirit of self-righteousness in our prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in reference to prayer, Quote, it is the highest activity of the human soul, and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer, end quote. So it should not surprise us that our Lord took the time to first teach us how to fence our prayer from idolatry. Such prayer that is done in an idolatrous manner is not just ineffective, it is ultimately destructive to the life of the Christian and to the life of his church. So with that as uh, what we had covered last week, let us now turn our attention to what our Lord teaches uh, next. Namely, he begins to teach us as to what it is that makes it possible for us to pray. And I've uh, titled the, uh, this lesson, The Basis of Our Prayer. I do have an outline for us, and um, we're going to follow that outline closely. I have, I have six points, but... Um, the latter two are application, and I've saved some time for questions. So the first uh, four points, we're going to look at the fatherhood of God, 
and then we will look at adoption, the doctrine of adoption, and we would uh, will also examine uh, how we become part of a family by virtue of our adoption um, into into Christ uh, into Christ's family, uh, and the last being the balanced approach that we should have when we come to the Lord in prayer. And I do uh, plan to have some time for questions, Lord willing. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. This is our Lord Jesus uh, speaking here. He says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Excuse me. And forgive us our debts as we, have also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses... Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So Christ begins, or he introduces something pretty phenomenal to his Jewish audience by referring to God, Yahweh, as Father. And he began teaching as such back in chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The German theologian and uh, scholar, New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremiah, upon examining the prayers of Jesus, he made this startling discovery that Christ in every prayer that he had prayed in the gospel accounts referred to God as his Father, save one. I believe that prayer where Christ is on the cross and he cries out saying, my God, my, my God, why have you forsaken me is that one exception. Other than that, all the other prayers that Christ had prayed in the New Testament, he had referred to God as his Father. So by calling God as his Father, Christ was claiming equality with God. And this was blasphemy and it infuriated the Pharisees. The Jews were about to stone Jesus on, Jesus on one occasion. He was even calling God uh, his own father, making himself equal with God. So the, uh, the concept of the fatherhood of God was completely foreign to the first century Jew. Uh, the same scholar, uh, Joachim, he continued his research on the Old Testament and uh, examining rabbinic writings from ancient Jewish sources. He also found that there was no personal reference to God as Father in these writings. And an example of a Jewish author specifically referring to God as Father in the context of prayer was not to be found until the 10th century AD. Yet here, uh, in his teaching, Christ is not only claiming God as his father, but he is also referring to God as the father of all who are citizens of his kingdom, who are granted entrance by uh, our Lord Jesus. 
So um, on the fatherhood of God, there are two schools of thought. The first being the universal fatherhood of God, the universal fatherhood. In the 19th century, a, a new discipline came into existence or it emerged known as uh, comparative religion. And this discipline um, sought to found a, uh, find a commonality, a common ground among all the world religions. So in, in the midst of all of this, a German church historian, Adolf von, von Harnack, produced a monumental work on the Wesson, the German word is Wesson, translated into English as means the essence of Christianity. And his work has since been translated into English with the title, What is Christianity? So in this work, Harnack concluded that the fundamental doctrines of Christianity can be surmised in two propositions. First, being the universal fatherhood of God, and second, the universal brotherhood of man. So according to Harnack, if God is uh, universally our father, then he deduces, he says then, based on that, then you and I are universally brothers and sisters. So that is the first school of thought or perspective on the fatherhood of God. Now, uh, if you recall back during Paul's discourse with the Greek philosophers in Athens, in Acts, he quoted back to them one of their poets, saying, for we are indeed his offspring. And Paul went on to argue that if we are indeed God's offspring, then we ought not to worship the divine being in an idolatrous manner, fashioned after silver and gold. So we have to ask ourselves, was Paul making a case for the universal fatherhood of God? If so, in what sense? Hold on to that thought, because we're going to revisit that uh, in a few minutes. So let's, uh, let's look at the second school of thought, and that is what uh, Jesus taught um, in the gospel accounts. Now, it is Jesus who had introduced to us the concept of God being our Father. So it's only right that we examine what he teaches on this concept of the fatherhood of God. Mary and Joseph, when they were looking for, for Jesus when he was a child, they had gone to, I think, a wedding or some event, and they had traveled back, and, and the Lord uh, Jesus was not with them. So when they searched for him, I believe for three days, and they finally found him, his response to them was, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Later on during his public ministry, Jesus made several claims of God being his, his father. This is one such claim or one instance in Mark, Matthew chapter 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. So Christ clearly claimed Yahweh as his father. We see that he called God his father not only during his public ministry, but throughout his earthly life, as we saw when he was much younger. And in the Messianic Psalm, chapter 2, we learn, uh, this is God, the Lord speaking, I tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So here in this messianic psalm, God the Father 
declares Jesus Christ to be his begotten son even before his incarnation. So we see that there is a clear biblical basis for the fatherhood of God towards Christ Jesus. But there is more. Christ in his confrontation, he, and he's had, had numerous confrontation, uh, confrontations with the religious um, uh, leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is one such confrontation. If you would turn with me to John chapter 8, we will look at uh, verse 44. John 8, 44. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a, uh, the father of lies. So here Jesus is calling the religious leaders in his day that they are the children of the devil. So if they are of the devil, then God cannot be their father. Let's return back to what we uh, um, learned from Apostle Paul. Now, when he had quoted this Greek poet and stated that we are the offspring of God, Paul was making the argument that all of us as human beings uh, have our origin from God, having been created by him. So we are God's offspring in the sense that God created us uh, physically. So we begin to see that Harnack's proposition of the universal fatherhood of God begin to unravel. There is no biblical basis for the universal fatherhood of God. However, as we will see shortly, there is a strong biblical basis, clear teaching from the lips of our Lord Jesus himself of the particular fatherhood of God. And that brings us to our second point, the doctrine of adoption. So all human beings by virtue of our creation have a common relation to God as our creator. However, not all of us have that special covenantal relationship with God as our father. We were born in sin, you and I, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, and uh, by nature, we are the children of the devil. It wasn't just the Pharisees, you and I are just uh, started out that way. Yet it pleased God the Father to predestine us, his elect, to adoption as his children. Paul, in recalling the Mosaic Covenant, says this of you and I those who come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the, says the Lord God Almighty. And earlier in his gospel account, John tells us how this comes to, uh, comes to pass, how uh, people, you and I, who had once been uh, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, uh, following the prince of the power of the air, how do we become children of God? He says that in John chapter 1, you turn with me uh, a few pages over, John chapter 1. This is in his prologue. Uh, look at verse 12. But 
John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it is for this very reason that Christ came, namely to reveal the Father to us, to make it possible for you and I to have this personal relationship by which we can call out to God, Abba, Father. Again, in Ephesians 1.5, writing to, to saints in Ephesus, Paul reminds them, saying, and by extension, you and I this very day, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So this is clearly referring to our spiritual creation. The Puritan Thomas Watson, uh, in his exposition of the Beatitudes, says this about adoption, quote, Children of God are made such by adoption and infusion of grace. According to Watson, and I'm going to paraphrase, the, paraphrase this for us, uh, the true nature of adoption consists of three things. The first, there is a transition from one family to another. We were uh, of, the, of the devil, the family uh, belonging, destined for hell. Now we are uh, belonging to the family of God, destined for heaven. Uh, God is now our father, Christ our elder brother. Uh, you and I, saints, are co-heirs of the spiritual inheritance that is ours in Christ, and the angels are fellow servants in that family. The second thing that he says about adoption is that there is an immunity or a disobligement from all the laws of our fa former family. In the past, we uh, were enslaved to our former master. We were enslaved to sin. Now we are no longer a slave. Rather, we are a saint. We are servants of God, and we are no longer enslaved to, uh, to, to sin. The third thing that he says about adoption is there is a legal investiture into the rights and royalties. So you and I have a new name. Previously, uh, our name was slave, a son of the devil. Now you and I are son or daughter of God. Previously, we were sinners. Now we are saints, a bondservant of God. Previously, our inheritance was, was hell, eternity in hell as right retribution for our sins. Now we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus of a heavenly kingdom. So you and I no longer have the spirit of slavery to fall back into, fe into fear, but rather we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So you and I no longer have to li constantly live uh, in fear of placating the gods, the idols in our lives, in, in trying to appease them. Rather, we have the joy and the liberty of worshiping and save, uh, serving our Heavenly Father. J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, calls adoption the highest privilege and blessing of a Christian, higher than even justification. He says, quote, justification is a forensic idea conceived of in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption, on the other hand, is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father, end quote. 
So in justification, God the judge pardons, pardons us uh, of our sins and he frees us from our legal obligations uh, uh, for our sins, that is namely judgment in hell. Uh, whereas in adoption, God, the judge of all the earth, not only pardons us and frees us of those obligations for our sins, but he, uh, he takes us into his household. He makes us his child, and he bestows upon us all the rights and privileges of being his child. Jerry Packer goes on to say, quote, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian, as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God, end quote. So that ties in with the concept of family. So when we become the children of God, we enter uh, not, into, not only into a relationship with God as our father, Christ as our elder brother, but we become part of a family. So let's examine, that's point number three in our lesson. So we'll examine the use of the pronoun our, which precedes uh, father. So we understand that uh, Christ in his teaching is, has a plurality in his audience. He's not only teaching the 12 disciples, but there are several others uh, to whom he is laying out his, uh, his teaching on prayer. But uh, the use of this pronoun, our, it signifies far greater significance than just referring to the plurality of, of his audience. Now, we have already learned of uh, our relationship with Christ Jesus as his Father. Our Lord Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. In our adoption, God graciously allows us into that same relationship that Christ had enjoyed with his Father in eternity past. In Hebrews, Christ uh, says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. So being in Christ, you and I uh, have just as much claim to God as our Father as Christ did. Hence, we can call God our Father just as much as Christ can. The, that, that's the second, uh, uh, rather that's the, the first uh, important thing uh, of the significance of that pronoun, our. The second thing is that in his providence, both in the Old and the New Covenant, God has always saved his people to live and worship him in community and not in isolation from one another. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We'll look at that. Uh, and uh, this specific passage, Peter is quoting from Deuteronomy. It was originally spoken, excuse me, of our God to his people in Deuteronomy, and uh, Peter quotes that for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in our adoption, we not only inherit God as our father, Christ as our elder brother, we also become members of a family, a rather large family, brothers and sisters in Christ of all walks of life, races, languages, cultures. Here, we are part of a smaller subset of that larger family here at Spring Meadows Presbyterian. We pray together, corporately confessing our sins every Lord's Day. We not only worship our triune God, but we also serve him in our communities, our neighborhoods, and minister to one another. We are one body together in Christ. So that brings us now to our uh, fourth point, which is balanced worship. Our Lord teaches us on how we ought to have a balance uh, in, in our approach uh, to God, our Father, in worship. The word our Father communicates to us familial language. It speaks of his eminence, his knowability, in a, in a personal and intimate way. It exudes familial endearment, love, and compassion in our relationship with God. Uh, in 1 John 3, 1, we're told, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the psalmist David declares, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in speaking of adoption, says of believers, quote, we are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened as by a father, end quote. So this is the kind of father that we have. He loves us, cares for us, and provides for us perfectly. Uh, but yet there is something about God, something uh, far more significant about God that uh, separates him from the love that we experience from our earthly fathers or our earthly mothers. And uh, that is what is called his holy love. David Wells in his book, God in the Whirlwind, uh, calls God's love, holy love. He says, quote, indeed his love is an expression of his holiness and we never know his love except in the context of what is eternally right, end quote. So in this relationship that you and I have with our God uh, as our Father, he has set boundaries for us in that relationship. And those boundaries are encapsulated in what we call his holy law. God chastens us when we sin, and, uh, and he does so for our good when we go astray. He desires for you and I to be holy even as he is holy. And it is to this very end that he is sanctifying us for his glory. So our Lord continues um, here in verse 9 in saying, he uses this, uh, adds on this uh, preposition uh, to our Father, saying, our Father in heaven. So what does our Lord mean by adding in heaven? What is he communicating to us, his, his bride, his church? King Solomon, in his dedication of the temple, 
uh, prayed, but will God dwell, indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So here we are informed that, that even heaven cannot contain God. And we know that God created, created the heavens and the earth. So uh, by virtue of him being the creator and Lord of, over all that is, he had contained, he cannot be limit, limited or localized by that creation. So what is being meant here? God is a spirit. We also, uh, uh, let's examine the character of God. He is a spirit. So uh, unlike us who are humans, he is not limited to any one location at any time. God is present everywhere at any given time. He's omnipresent. So the phrase in heaven conveys to us a certain attribute of God, namely his, trans his transcendence. He is high and lifted up far above all creation in the earth, and yes, above highest heavens. The psalmist says, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? So our Lord Jesus is teaching his covenant people what we have to keep in mind when we approach God in prayer. On the one hand, God is now our Father because of our adoption in Christ Jesus. He has availed, to, uh, availed himself to us in the most personal, intimate way as our Father. He is approachable anytime, any place. He has our attention. We have his ears. However, God cannot be approached in any way or any, uh, um, anyhow any way we feel like. R.C. Sproul says there are two things we must remember when we pray. The first thing we have to remember is, is to whom we are speaking. We must remember who God is. The second thing you and I have to remember is who we are, fallen, sinful beings in need of daily grace. So often, R.C. Sproul says, the prayers of God's people are irreverent. End quote. So there is a certain decorum in which we have to approach Yahweh, our Father in heaven, in prayer. He is holy other. He is the majestic one. We approach him in humility and holy fear. Our Father is in heaven. He is the very same God who consumed Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, for offering unauthorized fire in worship, which he had not commanded. God's character had not changed. He is the same. The author of Hebrews starkly reminds us, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we approach our Father in heaven, remembering every time that he is the transcendent one who has condescended graciously to be our Father and our God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Quote, put these two things together. God in his almightiness is looking at you with a holy love and knows your every need. He hears your every sigh and loves you with an everlasting love, end quote. I have uh, three points of application here. The first I have called worship. So the reality of our adoption by our almighty God 
A consuming fire should cause us to worship him every time we come to him in prayer. Our marvelous relationship with our Father in heaven should humble us and give us great cause for joy, come whatever it is that he ordains in our lives. And the second point of application is uh, assurance and security, the assurance and security that we find uh, by virtue of our adoption uh, by God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. And we know this is written by Apostle Paul. If anyone had cause for despair given the circumstances that God had ordained in his life and and the trials and tribulations that he had to endure being persecuted for the gospel, we uh, we can make a case that Paul was, was number one on the list. And yet, in light of all of that, uh, this is what Paul has to say to us. The Holy Spirit has to say through Paul. Romans 8, uh, 38 through 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God our Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second uh, point of application is the assistance that we have in the Holy Spirit uh, when we approach God in prayer. So how do we approach God in prayer with the mindset on the one hand, he is eminent, he has revealed himself to us as our Father, and yet on the other hand, he is holy other, he is the majestic one. How do you balance that? You and I are incapable of doing that, and we need the help of God himself, and he has provided such help for you and I uh, through his Holy Spirit, who is the seal, who is the guarantee of our redemption, Um, and that is to be found in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Romans 8, 26, we read, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I have drafted a couple of questions, so I'd like to um, save the remainder of our time um, to look at these two questions, or perhaps you have some questions or comments, uh, so we could do that at this time. Uh, Let's look at the questions. The first question, how do we Christians communicate the holy love of our Heavenly Father, excuse me, to those who have experienced failure from their earthly fathers? And those questions are on your outline if you need to look at them. Dave, uh, thank you. Well, as the earthly father of two daughters whose uh, bio fathers had abandoned them, um, I uh, think it's incredibly important to um, uh, to uh, uh, remark consistently on the faithfulness of God. 
that he is our, our ultimate father uh, who will not abandon us and not let us down, uh, keeps his promises and, and is there for us. Thank you, Dave. That's a good point. Really good. Thank you. Uh, can we have the mic for Sandy, please? So we, we can all, all hear you. Thanks, Jeff. Couldn't we also just show them lots of encouragement? And I mean, I'm thinking if their failed fathers probably abandoned them or didn't show up for them, show up for them, be there with them, show them love and kindness. That's a great point. Yeah, it is. Living out the gospel that, that God uh, has given to us and uh, modeling that for them. Um, also sharing that, you know, no matter how good an earthly father is, um, he's a sinner in the sight of the Lord. I have a good father, but he's a man of flaws, and even though I've been raised very well, I'm fully aware that he's a sinner in need of grace and sharing that with others. Yeah, just a link, uh, you know, creator-creature distinction. I mean, God is Father, but all of his attributes pour into who he is as Father. He's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable, and so he can't fail, right? So, you know, we ought to derive much comfort from God as Father because God is God as our Father. Um, with regards to the comments on abandonment, I would point that person to the cross and make the connection that we have a God, the God-man Jesus, who was abandoned for us. Yes. And I think the comment was also made earlier about promises. And so if we point them to Jesus, we can point them to how all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. And so God will always keep his promises and never let us down, even though we can't see how everything is working together here at this time. Amen. Good point. And just keeping with the context, uh, pray for that individual or, individual or those individuals because those cars remain, uh, given the reality of uh, being in a fallen world and having experienced all of that, um, but only God can bring about healing, and, and he does so by his sovereign grace through the gospel. Great answers, guys. Thank you. Uh, let's look at the second question, if no, no one else has comments on the previous one. Uh, the second question, how does the knowledge of God as our Father in heaven guide our prayer? Well, something um, I've struggled with since I was very, very small is anxiety. I had near crippling anxiety as a child, like six years old and under. And my parents had to work very, very hard to push the gospel into my life to overcome that. And one of the things that I learned to do as a child was take the verse to heart, um, pray without ceasing. And 
I would have issue, you know, even to this day, I struggle sometimes, to, am I coming to God reverently? But in my head, it's, it's more of a, a stream of conscious. I just, I talk to God constantly. I will comment to him on things that I'm thinking, or if I'm found, you know, if I find a prayer, I'll, I'll confess, I'll confess it. But something that I've, I think, become more aware of as I get older is that as I, as I talk to God, just as the day goes all the time, it, it has made me more aware of the need for praise and worship in my, in my heart constantly. That it shouldn't be something that I come to once a day and say, okay, now I'm gonna praise God. It should be something that's just flowing out of me as the day goes. And it's, it's actually been, um, it's been wonderful for me as a result because, you know, we tend to, we'll think about all the things going wrong in the world and all the things around us that are dangerous and evil. And instead, it, it's brought me to the point where I've, I've learned to just give thanks spontaneously all the time or when I find something that I want to praise God for, to do it then and there. And that's something, of course, that I'm far from perfect in, but it's, it's brought about more of a need to, um, to just be aware that we ought to be praising God and worshiping him constantly, and not just once, you know, one time during the day, it needs to be flowing out of our hearts. And it's, it's a blessing for me, because it reminds me truly just how good he is. Amen. Paul commands us to pray without ceasing. Yes. It's now Tom. Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting that when, when you look at the Lord's Prayer, uh, the very first petition in the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be thy name. And when we come to God, we come to him as Father, and he's a loving Father, but he's also a holy Father. And I like the way that you did contrast that in the way that you were teaching it. So when I come to prayer, you, uh, I use the acronym a lot of times of ACTS, which is Adoration confession and thanksgiving so you're coming to god as father and you adore him for who he is but then in relation to seeing god of who he is you see yourself as a sinner in need of grace and mercy so you confess your sins and then you're thankful for all the things that he's given you 
Thank you, Ron. He, he, he uh, gave a great preview of things to come in our <laughs> upcoming lessons, so <laughs> we'll uh, examine those in greater detail. Uh, that will be our last comment. Yeah, just to follow up on that one, um, so how does the knowledge of God as Father affect our prayers? I've been challenged in two ways. We, we usually pray at mealtimes, then we pray to put our children to bed. And it can very easily become just the thing we do before we do that other thing. Um, and so it's, you know, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, may your name be holy, sort of uh, challenges me in particular not to have prayer just be the transition between events, but you are in fact talking to God. So uh, that's kind of how that one rings in for me based on that first petition. Amen. So uh, looking ahead, we'll be examining the first petition, hallowed be thy name. Uh, so if between now and, and the next Lord's Day, if, we'll, if you look at some of the prayers in the Bible, uh, Hannah's prayer comes to mind, and the prayer of Daniel, I believe, in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I haven't fully put the material together, but likely we'll examine one of those prayers in our lesson, but just be looking ahead uh, for our next lesson. The first petition, hallowed be thy name. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for being our Father in heaven. Thank you that we are your children by your sovereign grace. I pray that you would continue to prepare our hearts and move in us by your spirit to worship you. Thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.